World War II. It's known as the greatest generation. And these are their stories. It's the World War II Project. This is the Americhicks with your host, Kim Munson. Welcome to the Americhicks World War II Project with Kim Munson, where we are capturing stories not only now from World War II, but also from Korea and Vietnam. We'll probably be adding stories in from some of the younger guys as well. Uh, but right now, we have been focusing on World War II, uh, and that precipitated from a trip that I took in 2016 with a group with the Denver Police Activities League that took four D-Day veterans back to Normandy for the D-Day celebrations. Returned realizing that we needed to capture these stories, so hence this project was born. I've had the great honor to interview over 100 World War II veterans, as well as Korea and Vietnam, and I am so thrilled to have in studio with me retired Air Force Colonel Lowell Bell. Lowell, it's it's just great to have you in studio. It's my pleasure being here. Thank you very much for the invite. You bet. You have quite a story, <laughs> and uh, so we want to hear that. But uh, tell us, first of all, you are a second-generation Tuskegee Airman. What does that mean exactly? Well, I've heard that for a number of years as being a second-generation Tuskegee Airman. But I think you have to look at the uh, original Tuskegee Airman before you determine whether or not I'm a second-generation. Okay. And I say that because the Tuskegee Airmen was a group of black individuals who were performed between 1941 and 1949, and there were about, the numbers vary, but I've heard from eighteen to 23,000 people who were involved in that experiment. It was called an experiment, as you recall, um, because it was perceived that blacks were not capable of flying airplanes. But nonetheless, so that terminated the Tuskegee experience, terminated in 1949. I'm a graduate of Tuskegee at that time, Institute is Tuskegee University now. And I entered active duty in 1954 as a result of being commissioned through the Air Force ROTC program. So am I a second generation? I would feel like it's an honor if I am, but I'm not sure because we have to look at what was happening in the Air Force at that time. In 1946, I believe, uh, they stopped pilot training. And they reinitiated it in 1951. Of course, I was in school at that time. Now, was that just for blacks or was that for for everyone? Everyone, okay. (laughs) And then they re-implemented it, and I think it was class 5001 or something of that nature. And I'm positive that there was at least one black individual in that group, a gentleman, Colonel Jim Randall, uh, who was in that first I guess, second-generation pilot training that occurred. So am I second-generation? Okay, if you want me to be. (laughs) Okay, okay. But there there is a distinction between that. It has never been actually finalized as to what is a generation of airplane drivers. Well, and uh, I had the great honor to interview James Harvey as well, who was mm-hmm. one of the, I guess, first-generation 
Tuskegee Airmen. And one of the things mm-hmm. that he said was that we had to be the best. Is mm-hmm. that something that you felt as, as you were starting to train? Is that kind of your mantra as well? Well, that started long before pilot training. I was pretty competitive. I graduated from high school at 16 huh. and uh, entered college when I was 17. Uh, my mom was my driving force because she would not accept anything less than excellence and whatever you do. So that's ingrained in me. And yes, I also have to say that pilots are a unique group themselves, that most pilots, I'm not going to say all, but most pilots have an attitude that says, (laughs) we are the best. You have to believe you're the best if you're going to be the best, right? You're the best, right. Well, tell me, I I, I was thinking about it when I was coming over. I wanted to talk with you about your childhood. Mm -hmm. And uh, so tell me about that and your mom and and the striving for excellence. I was born in Waco, Texas, in a black neighborhood, raised in that environment. Uh, Were we poor? Yes, but I never missed a meal Mm -hmm. that I'm aware of. And... My mom worked very hard all of her life to ensure that I was comfortable mm-hmm. and that I had an opportunity. She was really stressed education, which is even today is a key to success, or one of the keys mm-hmm. that, at least. Mm-hmm. So growing up, um, I became pretty handy as a kid. If I'd see something which I couldn't afford, I would make it myself. So over those over the years, I continued that. And uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the Fisher Body uh, Craftsman's Guild Foundation, or maybe not. No, not. Fisher Body produced all of the vehicles for General Motors. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, I do. Yeah, okay. And if you recall, there was a little logo of a little carriage or stagecoach. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, they had a competition during the 40s where two groups, age 12 through 15 and 16 through 18, I believe. I don't know. It's mm-hmm. been a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, could make that model, send it in, and it would be evaluated and um, by state and by region and then nationally. Well, I saw an opportunity there, so I made one of those and sent it in, and I actually won the second state award. Nice. And I use that as, as an example of things that you see you can do in terms of tools, my tools, the pocket knife, stick pins, and apple crates there to make it. Um, I think I have a picture of it, but I'll show you later. That is so neat. But um, there was a scholarship associated with those awards, so mine was second place in Texas, which wasn't much, but it was a lot to me because it was a whole $75, and that certainly helped tremendously when I started college. 
And you earned it. And I earned that it. That was yeah. so. So, what about your dad? Tell tell me about your dad. Uh, my dad and I don't have. I never did have a good relationship. Okay. Uh, he was an uneducated man, but I I don't have anything good to say about him. Okay. So I prefer. We'll not go over to. and talk about your mom then. You know, Lowell, there's something about a mother's love. <laughs> And um, the the willingness to to make sure that uh, you can give your children the the opportunity to succeed. Mm-hmm. And so, how, how many other brothers and sisters did you have? I'm an only child. Okay, oh. that was that was where I wanted to ask because here you are an only child. You go through the ROTC program, mm-hmm. and you she's you're in the military. Mm-hmm. How did that go with your mom? Well, I qualified for flying when uh, during the ROTC program, so I went to flight school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, of course, my mom probably finished the third grade, I guess, <laughs> maybe. And she didn't understand the techniques and the, the things that are associated with flying. And it was absolutely the most dangerous thing you could do so far as she was concerned. Well, I, th- I can see your point, for sure. <laughs> but even to the extent, pilot training, I'm kind of wondering, but pilot training, it's, yeah, it's difficult, but it's not, un- not doable. You can do it because look at the number of pilots there in mm-hmm. the world today. But... She wrote my commander a letter and said, don't let my boy fly. (laughs) (laughs) So I was called into his office, and he said, I got a letter from your mom. And it's like, oh, goodness, here we go. (laughs) So he asked if I wanted to continue in the program because he'd be happy to uh, stop me. (laughs) But, um, no, I convinced him that. Yeah, I'm an adult now. I was 21 at that time, and I can make my own decisions. Okay, oh, that that's a great story. I I I can I can totally get that. So now, so you then, what year was that then that you went into the service? I was commissioned in 1954. Okay, and I actually went on active duty in 1955. Okay, and. Um, I went to a little place called Marana Air Base. It's between Tucson and Phoenix. Um, a unique thing about my class, 560, that's Air Force Flight Training Class 560. Mm-hmm. There were about a thousand lieutenants and cadets in that class from all over the United States. And we were assembled at Lackland and dispersed to uh, the primary schools. Now, was, this was both blacks and whites together then, right? Yes. I okay. was going to mention that, that okay. there was about 1,000 individuals, of which 21 were black at that, at that time. And four of us were dispersed to, uh, four of the blacks were dispersed to Marana okay. in class 56 so. Um, I'm the only one who finished that class. Wow. Uh, and then after doing some additional research, I found that I was the only one who finished out of that group of 21, finished pilot training. 
Now, I mentioned pilot training itself. Yes, yeah, it's difficult, but I'm, I'm not a rocket scientist. I don't have any special skills that says I should fly. But I recognized the curriculum and what was required, and I met those requirements. Mm-hmm. But there must be, I mean, given the record on this, I mean, there must be quite a bit of washout in pilot training. There was a high degree of washout. I was talking to a young fellow not long ago, and that still exists. Even the Air Force Academy cadets who go to pilot training, although they've started a new program where they give them pre-pilot training training, which teaches them to fly an airplane before they go to flight school. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's help the washout rate, but it's still pretty high. Well, and you were, this would be moving into then the jet age, right? As a matter of fact, I was in the first all-jet basic pilot training class in the Air Force. Prior to that, in primary pilot training, we flew the T-34 and T-28. And Prior to our class going to basic pilot training, basic pilot training consisted of the T-30, T-28 and the T-33. T-33 is a little jet airplane, Mm -hmm. two-place jet. But in our class, they experimented and sent us directly to the T-33. So we are proud to say that we were the first all-jet basic pilot training class in the Air Force. Would you say that that was additional danger? I mean, uh, it it seems to me like being the first at something, you don't know how everything works. So would you say that there was extra danger being that first class? Well, I don't look at it as danger. I'm a mom, so okay. (laughs) Flying is flying. Mm Mm-hmm. but the equipment around the airplanes, the ones that we were actually training in were configured for combat. And they had gun sights and devices in it for weaponry. But that was in addition to learning to fly the airplane, which uh, put a bit more stress on you. You had to look around things that shouldn't be there in order to make it work. So, Now, I hadn't thought about that. I, I guess I, I saw Top Gun. I sh- should have thought about that. So not only would you be flying the airplane, but as the pilot, would you also be you know, uh, shooting in combat as well? Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, ultimately, that's what's ha- what happened. Flying has to become secondary because the weapon system operation is really why you're there. You're just a delivery platform for... Mm-hmm. getting rid of the, the armament on the airplane. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you have to fly the airplane, fly the airplane first, but be sure you work the weapon system wow. while you're doing it. And that's the difference between things like cargo airplanes and, well, even commercial airplanes. The only requirement for the guy flying a cargo airplane is to ensure that he's flying it safely. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't have to worry about a weapon system, Mm -hmm. which today they are really complex. I thought they were difficult Mm -hmm. back in the day, but 
and to operate it and make it do what you are supposed to make it do requires some concentration. Yeah. Well, you've heard of those people who can multitask. Right. That was the first element of multitasking. <laughs> I would think that that is for sure. Yeah. So, hey, Lowell, tell me about the first time that you f- flew by yourself. What, what did you feel? I was so happy that my instructor was out of the airplane. (laughs) (laughs) I had a good instructor. He had flown P-38s in World War II. His name was Deporter, George Deporter. And um, I don't know how many combat missions he had, but he himself was, I thought, one of the best pilots I've ever met beside myself. (laughs) (laughs) But... um, a little funny thing there, uh, during my early entry into the program, I, there was an airplane called a B-36, and it had 10 engines on it, I think. And I thought, wow, it would be really cool to fly that airplane. And the porter told me, he said, if you want to finish flight school, you better get someone else to be your instructor because I'm not teaching any bomber pilots. <laughs> <laughs> so that, he kind of instilled in me that flying fighters is a lot more complex than hauling people and hauling great big airplanes around the sky. Oh, that's for sure. Yeah. So, hey, Lobel, we're going to go to break, and uh, when we come back, we're going to continue with your story. But... Uh, it is sports time. The Rockies are playing, and Hooters is the spot to be this summer. You can enjoy Hooters beach-worthy seafood items like amazing fish tacos, delicious snow crab legs, and mouth-watering buffalo shrimp. Hooters has plenty of ice-cold beer options to help you cool down. And they've got this great deal Monday through Friday, nine items for nine bucks, and you can choose from nine delicious menu items, such as fish and shrimp tacos, salads, cheeseburger, Philly cheesesteaks, and, of course, their boneless wings. So you can uh, dine in. Uh, you can get food to go, or you can have it delivered right to your front door. So for more information, visit HootersColorado.com. That's HootersColorado.com, and let them know that you know the AmeriChicks, and we'll be right back with Lowell Bell. Welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project, where we are capturing stories from World War II. We're adding in Korea and Vietnam, and I'm thrilled to have in studio with me retired Colonel Lowell Bell, uh, retired Air Force, a fighter pilot, and uh, we talked a bit about your childhood and, and getting into uh, the Air Force and, and also about learning to fly. But there must be something inherent about being able to fly. I'm, I'm not sure that that's something that I could do, Lowell. Yes, you can. You can do it. I believe you're able to walk and chew gum. Most of the time. Okay. (laughs) Well, walking and chewing gum is a whole lot different to me than flying a plane and also using the weaponry. But but you're you're in the the Air Force now, and you're flying jets. And this is really kind of the first generation of jets. And then you became involved in the Vietnam War, right? So you did a number of of combat missions about that. So let's let's kind of take that time – you know, in the, the 50s, moving up to uh, the Vietnam conflict, you're in the Air Force. What's happening in America? What, what are you seeing? Well, from a personal vantage point, um, at the time that um, my age group of pilots were going to Vietnam, 
I was stationed in Duluth, Minnesota, at Duluth Air Force Base. And uh, we were flying uh, the F-106, which is a Mach 2 airplane, an all-weather interceptor airplane. It was our mission, our role was in support of NATO um, at that point. Uh, the one thing that was very noticeable that a number of my cohorts exited the Air Force and went to the airlines at that time. As a matter of the typical number of pilots in a squadron, somewhere between 25 to 35 pilots. And during a one-year period, I recall that we had like 113% turnover in the unit of guys getting out and going to the airline. And I myself had a line number with American Airlines. Then I thought about what was going on. And I thought about the fact that I'd been in the Air Force for oh, then like 10 or 12 years. Mm -hmm. uh, let's say 12 years or longer. And I thought about all of the things I'd done in the Air Force and the type of flying that I'd been able to do. And I concluded that I didn't want to drive a bus up and down the airline airways. Mm -hmm. And I also had small children at that time, so I talked it over with my wife. And, you know, there's inherent danger in going into combat. But mm -hmm. I felt like this is what I trained for, and I'm not going to drop out at this point. If I go there and come back, maybe I'll go to the airlines, but I doubt it because I don't like that type of flying. Mm -hmm. So that was very important to me. So I went, and fortunately I made it home. Yeah. And uh, I feel like I made a contribution that I was obligated to make. Mm -hmm. And I made it willingly. Okay. Let's go uh, back to your mom. How... Mm -hmm. How is how is your mom doing through all of this? Well, my mom is deceased at this time. Okay. Of course, she didn't want me to. You know, I was flying and ignoring her yeah. <laughs> about the flying, yeah. and she finally decided that okay, I can fly if I if I'm going to do it anywhere. So okay. she blessed it. She became very proud that oh, I was I a pilot, I and. You know, I was working my way up through the ranks at that time. I think I was a captain or a major or something uh -huh. like that. Uh -huh. Yeah, I was probably a major at that time, and she was very proud of that. And, nice. Well, what about ramping up to the Vietnam conflict? What What were you thinking as as uh, as this was starting? My thoughts were always. Uh, related to the Air Force role that I was involved in, which was operations, or the fighting element of the Air Force. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot to a war, I'm sure you can appreciate that, you know, as the logistics side, the maintenance side, mm -hmm. all of those things, but I really wasn't that concerned about those components because that's not what I was doing. Got it. And, um, however, I had roles like I was chief of maintenance in a squadron, so I understood the necessity for those things. But I was fortunate. My whole Air Force career, I flew airplanes, and I flew 
I started to say go fast airplanes. Fun airplanes with a real intense mission. And that's what I zeroed in on. Okay. That was my job. Okay. And I wanted to do the best that I could with mm. what uh, I had. I, I had good equipment to, to work with. Were these single uh, pilot planes? Yeah, or? one person. Jimmy. Okay, so we're into the Vietnam conflict now, <laughs> Vietnam War. And how many missions did you, how many combat missions did you fly? I flew 100 missions in, oh. in Vietnam. What was that like? What, what did you do exactly? <laughs> You've heard the expression, hours and hours of monotony punctuated by moments of stark terror. Yes, that, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did uh, ground support missions and air-to-air missions uh, as well. Uh, ground support, of course, is in uh, support of the troops, mm-hmm. and air-to-air is combat against the enemy airplanes. Okay. So tell me about that. I think that was pretty fascinating, air-to-air. Did you incur that very many times? Personally, no, maybe twice. Okay. And, uh, you know... There was a well, I think it was, a well-managed mission. Um, They have airborne command and control stations. Is that right? AB, triple C, they call them. Which can notify you when they have someone egressing or coming toward you. Okay. And they can notify you of that. And some of it is um, just to see your reaction as to how you're going to employ. Mm-hmm. And some of it is actually to get rid of you. Mm-hmm. And um, EBCCC is very good at uh, managing that part of, of an air war. Mm-hmm. So... Um, we were fortunate at that time that we had good controllers, mm-hmm. and it minimized the air-to-air combat we okay. were involved in. And where were you stationed? I was stationed in Thailand, at Takli okay. Air Force Base in Thailand. And we were flying F-105s, the Thunder Chief. It, too, is a Mark II airplane. It has tremendous weapons capability. Uh, you know, it can carry two 2,000-pound bombs, a uh, mm-hmm. whole bunch of smaller bombs, and mm-hmm. has a Gatlin gun in it that's 6,000 rounds a minute and mm-hmm. shoot rockets. And actually, it's a nuclear, nuclear wow. <laughs> uh, equipped airplane. We did use them in Vietnam, of mm-hmm. course, in that configuration. Mm-hmm. I really liked the airplane. I probably have five or six hundred hours in it, okay. you know, between training and combat. Okay. And the one thing that I liked about it, it was a, almost as big as this chair that I'm sitting in, uh-huh. the cockpit, which most cockpits are really tight uh-huh. because they're made for little bitty people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay. uh, well, the next thing, where... 
what were your thoughts when you heard that the Vietnam War was over? Do you remember where you were and, and what you were thinking at that time? Let's see, that was, what, 1972? In 1972, I'd been selected to go to Iceland. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was actually the first black officer assigned to Iceland. And I went to Iceland as director of operations for Air Forces Iceland. Iceland is kind of a unique country. Uh, they don't have a military. They have a police force. And um, you probably have heard of an air defense identification zone. Mm -hmm. um, geographically, you know where Iceland mm -hmm. is sitting. When I went to Normandy, we flew to Iceland and, and then over. Yeah. Okay. So uh, Murmansk is in Russia. And uh, the Russians used to fly directly from Murmansk to Cuba. But in order to do so, they would fly through the Iceland Air Defense Zone. So uh, we had to escort them through that that zone. So I was there for two years, and many times we were out over the North Sea at 2 o'clock in the morning on a single-engine airplane <laughs> escorting TU-104. That was the Russian bear, the TU-104. Uh, this would be have been during the Cold War then, too. Well, it was 1970s, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure I'd know when the exact end of yeah. the Cold War occurred, but yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess the Cold War really was more in the... After World War II, 50s and 60s, 60s then, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, mm -hmm. things were changing. But it could have been the changing of things, uh, the evolution of warfare, country positions, and all of it. Well, NATO, of course, was in effect because NATO occurred right after World War II. Mm -hmm. yeah, so. mm -hmm. I got to think that that would be really kind of amazing to be out flying over the North Sea at 2 o'clock in the morning. I mean, I got to think it was kind of beautiful, too, wasn't it? <laughs> Where you're going so fast you don't see it. I, uh, how does that work? Uh, no, that's not, not a fact. You know, it, it all looks the same. It looks like looking out the window. Okay. okay. Uh, the North Sea is r really cold. Mm-hmm. And... Um, your survival, if you have to jump out, yeah. is pretty low. And yeah. we lost one airplane while I was there. Uh, we had the president died. President Johnson died. And Searcy was born, which was an island owned by Iceland, all within a 24-hour period. So um, that was my worst day in Iceland. Oh, I bet. Yeah. I bet. Okay. Anything else about Iceland that you'd like to share? Well, Iceland Air Defense Command, uh, Iceland Defense Command, was at that time very unique because we had all four services there to support the Iceland. And it was also a keyed position for 
the United States to be able to work out of Iceland. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a unique country. I was fortunate enough to be senior enough to be able to take my wife and kids up there, mm-hmm. and it was a unique experience for them as well. Mm-hmm. And um, when I go back to Iceland, everyone's going there now because it's a great vacation spot. <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't much of a vacation uh, spot. They talk about things that were there. And I look at it when the Americans actually brought trees up there and we kept them under flower pots to get them going. So I figured like I helped uh, forest. Uh, you helped forest Iceland. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but when I was there, there was one little spot of trees over on the northeast corner of the island. I'm guessing there were like 500 trees. Yeah, but there are parts of Iceland that are just absolutely gorgeous. Uh-huh. You know, the fjords and green pastures with sheep and the goats on it. Yeah, and you were there for two years. Two years, yes. <clears throat> so then, where did you go after Iceland? After Iceland, I went to Arizona. <laughs> Iceland, Arizona. Okay. <clears throat> so, what did you and, do there? And Arizona, I was an assistant. Deputy of Operations for 26th Air Division. Uh, I was stationed at Luke Air Force Base, and 26th Air Division is an air defense uh, component. Luke itself is a tactical air component, and they do training for the tactical air at that time. Okay. Um, I think Luke is still... The services have changed designations since I was in it. Now, I know a lot of my listeners probably know this, but we're getting new listeners all the time, and I'm learning so much. So how would you define tactical air? What is that exactly? Tactical air is ground support, um, dropping bombs and shooting bullets. Okay. And protecting uh, the ground forces there. You know, the Air Force can take property, but the Army has to hold it. Right. Um, Actually, in the taking process, they need help and assistance, and that's what tech does. Uh, Air defense is associated with NORAD, uh, North American Air Defense, Mm -hmm. which is counted in the United States. Mm -hmm. And... It was developed actually led nuclear attacks to the United States. Mm-hmm. NORAD still exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, the headquarters is down in Colorado Springs. Now, I want to ask you about NORAD when we come back uh, uh, after this next break because I I actually remember as a kid that we had um, a woman who would babysit sometimes and her son was there. And she was saying it's like really, really secret, and uh, and she was just kind of regaling us with I, I don't I think she was making things up, mm-hmm. but I always had a, a kind of a I was always really interested in that. So you served there for a number of years, then, right? What in Norad? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Okay. But I'd tell you, but I'd have to shoot you. I was going to ask <laughs> you that. That's what I was afraid of. Is how much can you tell me about Norad? But uh, we're going to go to break. This is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks World War II Project. We are ta- talking with retired Air Force Colonel Lowell Bell about his uh, 
his time in the Air Force from 1954 to 1978. And uh, so we're going to go to break. When we come back, uh, we'll um, continue the conversation. Welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project, uh, where we're having conversations, capturing these stories from these amazing men and women that have really put it all on the line so that we can live as free people. And I am thrilled to have in studio with me right now retired Air Force Colonel Lowell Bell, He was in the Air Force from 1954 to 1978, and he flew fighters, but he had quite a storied career. Uh, He also uh, served in Iceland. He was the first black officer in Iceland, and you were in Air Force. Air Force, okay. Mm -hmm. And you were in charge of everything in Iceland, right? Uh, uh, Air Force is Iceland. Got it, got it. And then you went to Arizona, and now NORAD, and... Um, I was sharing with you, you asked me what I knew during the break about NORAD, and I'm like, well, I think it's super super secret, and I think it's down near Colorado Springs, and I think it's in a mountain. And so, am I even close? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good. But NORAD is a combination of weaponry that will protect the United States and Canada. And it consists of not just airplanes, but other devices as well. I'm trying to keep it as... You have to... It is pretty super secret, isn't it? NORAD has missiles. Okay. That's... And you're familiar with ICBMs. Mm -hmm. That's a component of NORAD. Um, NORAD also at this point, I believe, has some space requirements as well in terms of satellite control and monitoring. I'm pretty sure they monitor everything that's up there floating around. Okay. Now, is it uh, primarily Air Force that operates NORAD? It's a joint service. Okay. Uh, if not the current commander, the previous commander of NORAD was a Navy guy, mm-hmm. uh, Navy Admiral, stationed in Colorado Springs at Peterson Air Force Base, okay. and then later Shriver Air Force Base. Okay. But the associated bases in uh, Colorado Springs, of course, is the mountain, but I'm told that there's still some activity in the mountain, mm-hmm. and Shriver has the bulk of the NORAD uh, operations, and as does Peterson Air Force Base. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. So Cheyenne Mountain is separate from NORAD then, yes, or? NORAD owns Cheyenne Mountain. Okay, okay. Um, so NORAD is alive and well then, but we just probably can't talk a whole lot about some of the things there because... We can't uh, give away secrets, right? Well, that's true. Mm-hmm. Well, and yeah, while you're in those positions, you've made a commitment, and you're obligated to keep those secrets there, not to float out of the public. It's not in the public's best interest, if you know. Well, as they said in World War II, what is it, loose lips sink ships. That's right. So you have to be careful on that. What else, Lowell, is there anything else you can share that you think people should know about NORAD, just you know, everyday people like me? Yeah, I think you should be very comfortable that you're sitting here 
knowing that someone is absolutely protecting you at this very moment. That's awesome. You're paying for them through your tax dollars, Mm -hmm. but it's worth every penny that you put into it. Okay. Um, What else would you like to share about your career in the Air Force? And then we'll talk about some things now. Well, as a pilot in in the Air Force, I've also been an instructor pilot, test pilot, virtually every function of flying an airplane within the Air Force, I've formed those. One unique thing that I'll share with you, on a functional test flight, a functional test flight is one that, well, first of all, the airplanes are evaluated, checked out, maintenance-wise, on concerted intervals to ensure that they're performing as they should. Mm-hmm. And after the ground people are finished with the airplanes, you get to fly it to ensure that it performs like it should. And that's what test pilot means then, huh? That's one form of test pilot. It's okay. called a functional test pilot. Okay. And I was on a functional test flight at one time. And the profile for the flight, when I say the profile of the things you do, well, you, mm-hmm. you go and you, of course, take off and you go up and you perform some instrument checks and um, engine checks and those kinds of things. And then you take it up to another altitude and you do that. And you accelerate out to the max speed of the airplane to see that it does that and whatever. Well, when you get to the max speed of the airplane and you're, say, 55,000 feet, you say, well, I may as well bleed off the airspeed. So you just point the nose up and... You just let the airplane go for a while. Um, Flying at those altitudes, you should have a pressure suit. Right. Well, this particular flight, I did not have on a pressure suit. because I thought the airplane was capable of getting me up there and Mm -hmm. doing everything. Associated with that, a couple of weeks before this flight took place, the flight surgeon, who's an individual, a surgeon that's actually assigned to the fighter unit, okay. gives us briefings on um, aerospace medicines and those kinds of things. And he says, you guys flying around up at 55, 60,000 feet without a pressure suit, if something happens, you're going to die. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <sighs> now, why did you put the pressure suit on? Well, that's another story. <laughs> uh, okay, okay. At any rate, um, I was at 67,000 feet and lost pressurization. <laughs> and I bet you can guess what the first thing I thought of. Probably what that surgeon had said, yeah, right? You're going to die. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the airplane has an emergency pressurization system in it that took over almost like immediately. But in the interim, I pointed the airplane towards the earth and going down pretty fast because I lit the burner to get down as fast as I could. Uh-huh. And I'm going through, say, 25,000 feet, probably in a 60-degree dive at, say, Mach 1.5 or something like that. Oh, my God. And then I thought, well, I didn't die up there, so I'm going to have to do something to get from dying here. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, 
thanks to the airplane, it was able to turn the corner and everything went off very well. So immediately after that, of course, um, they changed all the rules. Thou shall not fly at those altitudes without a pressure suit. <laughs> and is the pressure suit then, is that kind of a backup if the the plane would lose? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you want to tell the story why you didn't have that pressure suit on? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is Kim Munson with the Americhicks, and we are talking with retired Air Force Colonel Lowell Bell, who also, he was a fighter pilot. You had mentioned when we had first talked that you had flown these different iterations of these different planes. So it was a whole bunch of different... Uh, airframes. Yeah, airframes. So tell yes. us about that. Well, an airframe is a configuration of an airplane. And I'll use the F-106 as an example. There's the F-106A, which is a single-place airplane, and the F-106B, which is a two-place airplane. Um, The F-4 itself is a multi-airframe family. There's C, D, E, F, G, H, and so on there. But I went through my uh, Form 5, which is a log that we keep your flying time in. Mm-hmm. And I figured out that I'd flown 23 different airframes, probably uh, 12 or 13 different airplanes over my career in the Air Force. So I have about 6,000 hours, most of it in jet fighters, most of it in single engine, single seat mm-hmm. fighters as well. Mm-hmm. But that's that is a lot. Um, you got out of the Air Force in seventy eight. Mm-hmm. So what have you been doing since nineteen seventy eight? Working. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first thing I <clears throat> got involved with was with the city of Colorado Springs on their Human Relations Commission. Okay. And then I got on their loan committee. And then I got roped into El Paso County uh, Planning Commission. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then I got involved with the El Paso Regional Building Commission. Okay. So I've been doing That's a lot. good things, hopefully. Plus, I'm a member of a number of organizations uh, like the Red River Valley Fighter Pilots Association. The Order of the Dedalians, which actually started World War One, kind of a unique group of, of, of people. Um, I'm active with my fraternity, Omega Psi Phi fraternity. Uh-huh. Wow. I'm also active with the local Hubert L. Hooks Jones chapter of the Tuskegee Airmen. Am I too far away? Oh, I think you're doing great. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And a number of other, like the Air Force Association and so on. I don't know, haven't counted them up, but it's enough to keep you busy. Yeah, I would say so. Lowell it's quite a life. Uh, What would you say to young people in America today? What's the advice? What would you say to them? I think that young people should take advantage of three things. (laughs) One is education, 
two is education, and three is education. Because it's the lifeline that's going to provide you options that you ordinarily would not have. So uh, I'm strongly a supporter of aviation. Well, even the programs that we have within the local Tuskegee Airmen chapter, we give scholarships. Mm-hmm. Um, case in point, we've initiated an endowment with CU Denver, and we've also initiated an endowment with DU mm-hmm. here in, in mm-hmm. Denver. We have a minority of scholarship annually. We have a um, flight program called the Mile High Flight Program where we take in our city kids and run through a two-phase program where they actually get to fly an airplane. But the important part is expose them to all elements of aviation, the the tower, everything from the tower, ground maintenance. And uh, we fly all of them. But the ones that are brightest, we run them through the second phase program where we take them all the way up through solo flight. Nice. And um, we have, uh, well, the Air Force has a similar program. It's called the ACE program. Don't ask me what the acronym is. Mm-hmm. But uh, they take people from, kids from all over mm-hmm. with programs similar to ours and run them through a program where they too uh, take them up through solo flight. And we've been fortunate that We've produced students here that have qualified for the ACE program every year. And th- these programs are not cheap. Yeah. You right. know, teaching a person to fly is an expensive thing. You know, it's probably what, five, six thousand dollars up through solo. Okay. So as a result of that, then we have to go out and open your hands. And we've had a number of very. The Daniels Fund has been, for example, has been a supporter of us. Several of the aviation companies. What a great program! When you say solo, do these kids then they actually fly solo? They actually fly by themselves. Wow! One time. That's that's amazing. Yeah. A couple of other questions. You grew up in Waco, Texas. I mean, you've seen race relations in America. What? What can we do to bring us together? Um, because it seems like we have division right now. What do you think we can do, Lowell? Well, that's a great question. <laughs> As an individual, I think it's the only way that you can actually approach it. For example, you've personally gotten involved with something that's going to expose people other than you to me. Right. That's the goal. So how you feel about me is almost immaterial, but what you can learn about me is going to change you. Mm-hmm. And if there was a, and that does exist, the, the, the capabilities for that to happen does exist, but it calls for outreach. Mm-hmm. And... You know, if you think of racism in itself, I think everybody has an element in it because it goes back to nature, right? Birds mm-hmm. of a feather flock together, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. However, 
I saw Colorado was uh, the uh, a little black and white fence that's the Colorado bird mm-hmm. and a robin sitting side by side <laughs> in my backyard the other day, which I thought was kind of unique. Yeah. You know, they flew off their separate ways. Yeah. But it's a doable thing if we take the, make the effort. So mm-hmm. the program that I'm supporting these days attempts to make those efforts. You know, I take the Mile High Flight program we have here. We don't say, unless you're a black male, you can be in this program. Mm -hmm. We make it open to everyone, and we try and give everyone the opportunity. And several of our kids, well, not several, a lot of our kids have gone on to be successful. We have two or three now that are airline pilots. Mm Mm-hmm as a result of going through the Mile High Flight Program, which uh, that kind of makes us proud. I'd, I'd say so. And uh, those, some of them come back and assist with the program that brings other kids in because now they can relate directly to their experience in the program and where they are, and the kid can see it for himself. So more of those types of things... I think would make a difference. Most definitely that makes a difference. Um, Everybody's made up their mind, haven't they? Well, I hope not. I hope that we can, (laughs) I hope we can continue to, to, to come together uh, because I think that we need to come together to unify because this country is a, I mean, it's not perfect. It sure has, you know, has its challenges, but you know, I think it's the best thing out there. And that's my last question. You have, have served our country uh, for many years, and what you're doing with kids and all these different programs is really admirable. When you see the American flag, Lowell Bell, what goes through your mind? Such hairs I have stands up on the back of my neck. <laughs> I, I still get emotional about the flag, you know, and I salute the flag and I stand for the flag, and all of those patriotic things, that's me. It is you. I can also, I'm learning to be open-minded, though. If someone wants to kneel for the flag, and they do it because that's their belief, I think that's okay, too. And I know there's a lot of controversy mm-hmm. about that, it's one of those things that, what is the value of a flag? What does it represent? You know, I think Lowell to me, and I think it's because of this World War II project, to stand on the beaches of Normandy. And I was standing behind a couple guys that were operators of the Higgins boat. Mm-hmm. And they said, the, do you remember the first day the water was red? It wasn't until the third day that the water was pink. I have always I've always had reverence for the flag, but that's you know when I realize that people have given their all. You put you you put yourself in a position where you would give your all for that. Just to me personally, I just I think it's important to respect it. Well, you're doing it for just the flag. You're doing it for the country. The flag represents the country. Right. Okay. And. Maybe you can't take that approach, but you're doing it for the United States of America, not for the flag. It's just a piece of cloth. Yeah. 
put some colors. Yeah, on. I guess it's for everything that it represents yes. to me. So, mm-hmm. Lowell, we're out of time. But, oh, my gosh, this mm-hmm. has been so such a great interview. I so greatly appreciate it. And so it's been such an honor to get to talk with you, retired Colonel of the Air Force, Lowell Bell. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Okay. And uh, we'll be back same time next week. Thanks so much. This is the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson signing off. Join us next time for the World War II Project and your host, the AmeriChick, Kim Munson. Until then, keep saluting the greatest generation.